Hello everybody and welcome back to The Huddle Show. I'm Melissa Nova and I have Cindy Dawes here with me. Hello. Hi. We're going to do our usual talking about stuff that we have noticed in the last week, stuff that we've been reading and watching, and then the mystery question. Mm. So we've had quite a big week Mm. from a work perspective. Mm. So I'm not sure if we've got a whole bunch of new things that we've been noticing, but we can have a crack. Yeah. I feel like the only things I really could have noticed were myself at home because I haven't left the house very often, (laughs) actually, except to come here to do this. Um, So I do have quite a few things I've read and listened to and seen, but I did have I did have a very exciting experience in that we actually went out to eat in a restaurant. Ah, oh, be still my beating heart. I know. We had food prepared by somebody else, <laughs> someone else's hands. I didn't shop for any of the ingredients. <laughs> I didn't uh, chop them or saute them or do anything with them. And they arrived on a plate that I didn't have to wash. What is, what is this called? It's what called is... hospitality. Oh, wow. I know. It was, it was really... I was overly excited. I felt a bit sorry for my partner. Mm. Um, If anyone's watched uh, Seinfeld ever, which I'm pretty sure everyone will have, they might remember Elaine's always whacking people in the (laughs) chest. Get out. I did quite a bit of that as I told my partner how excited I was we had a booking, how excited I was we were on our way, how excited I was we had arrived. I was very overexcited. Yeah. Um, but I have to say the staff are also pretty excited to be cooking for people yeah. and back in their environment. I had had a bit of an anxiety about it not feeling like a proper restaurant with yeah. all the with all the um, restrictions on how many people you'd have and how far away yeah. people would have to be. And I think if there had been a lot of solo diners, my fears would have been realised mm-hmm. because everyone would have been at a distance and there would have been no buzz, but there was quite a few groups and it just felt like a not packed day at the restaurant. And we set up at the bar and watched the kitchen, which is one of my favourite things to do. And everything was just incredible. And yeah. uh, and I think in an earlier episode of this podcast, which feels like it's also been going for a million years now, <laughs> I talked about how... If I, I wondered if people would have a, a renewed appreciation for hospitality and for restaurants, and I certainly noticed that in myself. Mm. Like every single bite was like ambrosia to yeah, me. Yeah. And the fact that other people were inquiring as to my well-being and doing things for me uh, was just so incredible. I would have paid a million dollars for that. I wouldn't have. I don't have it. But... <laughs> I felt like I would have paid a metaphorical million dollars for that meal experience. And it it was such a great reminder of why we love doing this because it's not that you're eating food someone else has cooked, even though that was extraordinary. It was that whole wraparound of really fantastic hospitality. We We felt so welcomed into the space and people were genuinely interested in what we thought of the meal and topped our water up without us having to get up and like it was it was the very best hospitality experience Mm. so and that's a like being in melbourne i think that's also a really important part of the culture of the city as well isn't it the that whole hospitality the restaurants the the pop-up this and the hidden that it's Mm. a really really important part of living here as well and to have that not be accessible or present i think I know, I just wonder, I don't know, but I wonder whether or not that had a really significant impact on this city from a cultural perspective mm. 
Um, because it is something that, you know, the, the cafes and the coffees and the galleries and the whatever, it's, it's such a embedded way that you spend your time in the city and to have all of that not be available or accessible would have had quite a significant impact, I would imagine, on people. Mm. Um, of means, of course. Yes. Um, the uh, the other thing that I just was reflecting on as you were telling that story and how you were, you know, Elaine like overexcited. Mm. I um because I do that too, and I actually use her as a as an example. A role model. Of, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Accidental. <laughs> it's more like whoops. <laughs> I just did an Elaine. <laughs> Because um, it can be quite an aggressive shove, I've noticed. It's not intentionally so, but there's just a, quite a lot of um, force behind the emotion. And I was just thinking, do you have um, do you have certain emotions that you do really well? Oh. Because I would say, while you're thinking about the answer to that, I would say for me, excitement is, I do excitement really well, really, really well. Oh, yeah, I probably do that. Yeah. Overly well. <laughs> I find it pretty easy to get excited <laughs> yeah. about things. Lots of tiny things make me very excited. I do anticipation really well. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. I I'm a, I love travel, but I get about a third of the pleasure from the travel in the planning and the anticipation. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. I'm a massive yeah. forward planner and I find so much joy and pleasure in anticipating something that's going to happen. Yeah. So much so that sometimes the real experience can let me down a bit. Oh, because the anticipation is but better. But it's okay. I've had, <laughs> but I've had the anticipation. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I, do you know what else that you do really well? You um, receive gifts really well. Oh. Yeah. Like with such, such joy. <laughs> And it's just like, oh, my God, that is just such a lovely thing to do. And it's so fantastic. And I'm going to do this with it. And I'm going to do that with it. Oh, it's you. really lovely. And I think it's sort of like I'm just speaking about the person on the receiving end of giving mm. you something. He kind of wants me to do it again and again and again. Like, I think it's a really great. Oh, yeah. It's a talent. <laughs> I Look, I must admit, I do love a gift wrapped gift too. Mm. So much so to the horror of my children that sometimes if I was buying something in a shop, I knew did good gift wrapping and they say, is this a gift? I would say yes even if it was just for myself, oh, it's so cute. just for the sheer pleasure of unwrapping something beautiful. I would always keep the gift wrapping and then repurpose it. And yes. you have been the recipient of repurposed gift wrapping. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I've never thought about an emotion I do really well. I, I have reflected on things I don't do very well. Mm-hmm. And I think we've had a bit of a chat about this. I'm very bad with a big emotion. Mm. Um, yeah. I find it very hard to express great happiness mm. and great sadness and great anger. I'm just, I'm better at those middle ones. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. We have had that conversation and I think you and I both don't do anger very well. No, I'm working on it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not like, being angry, but being better at accepting it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I think, um, you know, the, I don't know. It's just it's a weird feeling. But sometimes when you're watching like film and there's a character in the film that is can just completely unleash, like in that moment when they're feeling, you know, and it doesn't really matter 
what the situation is, but say they just get really frustrated and they get really angry and they can just like go rah and just voice it in that moment. Mm. Um, yeah, I find that really, really challenging. But I think I think people totally get the message around me that you are angry yeah yeah but it's not I don't I don't know if it's particularly like explicit Mm. you know that I I, I can't kind of go in this moment I'm feeling like this and uh, Mm. I think a very early age I was told to really control that that you know being sort of it's perhaps not constructive or something but then where does it go (laughs) well then it goes into your neck and your shoulders i think (laughs) it's where it goes that's right yeah oh i'm gonna that's a really great question i'm gonna think about emotions we do yeah yeah Mm. um yeah i just it was just it occurred to me because you just mentioned it Mm. about that elaine thing Mm. i mean another thing that we share Mm, that's true so tell me about what you've been um reading or watching or something oh well i've actually managed to cram quite a bit in oh good on you yeah so the first thing i'm going to talk about is this podcast that i am now obsessed with right. that i love it's by two women who i think are both hilarious and um important <laughs> so nakia louie and miranda tapsell are two um aboriginal women from australia and they will put a link to this because sure, a couple right. of years ago they did um what I think is almost the best 20 minutes of Australian television I've seen in a very long time, uh, which That's I won't describe. That's the one that you shared? Yeah. Yep. yeah. Um, but they put this podcast together and it's called something like Debutante Race, Power and Something. And what they're doing is they're looking at Aboriginal history and feminism through the lens of debutante balls. Oh so God. just stay with me. I know it yeah, sounds that's awesome. bizarre. But they, so in 1967, after the referendum, um, which enabled Aboriginal people to be counted as part of the census, as opposed to being seen as part of the flora and fauna of this nation, oh there was this great celebration. And quite weirdly, uh, a group in Sydney decided to have an Aboriginal debutante ball. And so they kind of use that as a bit of a lens to then have this conversation that that goes out very broadly. And they talk to lots of women who went to the debutante ball and uh, Nakia Louie's mum organises one still. It continues. Uh, And the whole thing is it's funny. They're very funny. And uh, but it's very deep and it's heartbreaking and really interesting. So I'm going to share one really weird fact Um, So they go right back to the origins of the debutante ball and they go right back to King Henry. Wow. And uh, and then they talk about, uh, so when he split from the church so he could divorce his first wife and marry his second wife who was subsequently beheaded, uh, he closed all the nunneries. So what happened? I know it's a very long bow, but he closed all the nunneries and that meant that there are a whole lot of women whose families now had to marry them off and do something with them. Right. Previously they'd been taken out of circulation and their parents didn't have to worry about them. So then Queen Elizabeth started this kind of matchmaking process because marrying, and they they make this connection between the lives of young women and um, trading slaves. They talk about 
you know, the, the wealth in England was formed by sugar and slavery. And, uh, and then they talk about how men needed to secure their land. So essentially they commodified their daughters. Wow. And one of the ways that they were able to, it was like, it's like a sale yard mm. for cattle. They had these debutante balls where essentially it was saying my daughter is now old enough to be part of the marriage market. I know it's fascinating. So they go right back to to that history, and then they they have this really thoughtful and funny consideration of well, how can such a bizarre and sexist and kind of anti feminist tradition be empowering for young Aboriginal women? Yeah. And along the way, they talk about things like the stolen generation yeah. and um, the way Aboriginal people in Australia are, are surveilled constantly. Uh, uh, they talk about everything. I, ca- I can't recommend this highly enough. It's, okay. I love it so much. <clears throat> I'm sold. Yep. I so want it. That's fascinating. Mm. It's, it, it just really, um, like I, I always think about when I hear about this sort of thing and this type of creativity, I always go back to or I want to be in the room when those decisions are made mm. and those connections are made and how they how they came to that specific sort of combination mm. of of things um because you know when you talk about it the way that you have having experienced the thing and obviously it made a lot of sense and it had a very Im- powerful impact because mm. you're wanting to share it um but in the conception of it you don't necessarily know whether it's going to work or not right so um it takes a lot of creativity and courage to kind of go yeah this is oh what we're going to do. It's Ab- fantastic. Absolutely. I, I mean, who would have thought to put those two concepts yeah. together? And they yeah. do it in such a warm and engaging way. And they're obviously great friends. Uh, so they have fun, but there's a lot of respect for one another. Yeah. Uh, I am reading something else which kind of touches on that thing about collaboration and creativity as well. Before you talk about that. Yeah, you should tell us something. No, no, no. I, there's something that you said um, in the, this current on this current topic mm-hmm. of the podcast that you're listening to. Where you spoke about the 1967 referendum, referendum mm. about, um, you know, Aboriginal people being considered as a part and able to vote, not part of mm. the fauna and flora. Mm. The thought that I had that I'm just sharing with you off the cuff without any <laughs> warning or prep, mm. um, what are your thoughts on it actually being not – like the other way in the sense that instead of the um, Aboriginal people becoming separated from fauna and flora, Mm. that humans were actually, everyone became part of, like we joined them (laughs) where Mm. they are. Mm. Because, and I guess one of the reasons why I, what happened for me when you shared that was, oh, that's the wring way around. Mm. We Mm. should have actually gone to being included as it like equally considered as a part of fauna, flora and humanity mm, mm. <laughs> all in the same thing. Mm. Um, I just wanted to share that thought with you and get your spontaneous views on that. Mm. But um, I think one of the reasons why I'm thinking that way is because of this video that I watched on YouTube. <laughs> See what I did there? Yeah. Um, don't forget about your collaboration. Thing. I won't. Um, <clears throat> which was a documentary called uh i think it's called tree line um which is kind of like the life of trees and uh the way that it's shot is not too dissimilar from what you were sharing 
in a previous episode around um, the beach mm. where it's just beautifully, the cinematography is amazing and it's, it is like a meditation. They have um, interviewed people who are sort of tree doctors and people mm. who work in forests and, and all of that sort of stuff. But just, and we've spoken about this before because you and I are both interested in nature and stuff, but just the, there are some trees that are still living today and I think they're, um, they're something pines. Yeah, I'm not very good with the details, mm. half facts. Um, but they've been around since the time that the pyramids were being built. Yep. And um, and what the way that the this particular woman was talking about it, she um, was a forest scientist, let's say, and she was particularly interested in in sort of um, what would you call it, like uh, historical ecology, like the history of. And she was saying one of the things that that she really admires about trees is that they don't actually have the option to get up and move. So the fact that they've been here for thousands of years gives us this um, fascinating lesson around adaptability and how have they mm. lived on for so long over many, many periods of climate change, actually. Mm. And so she was, is looking at these trees as a, as a source of inspiration for how we might deal with the current climate emergency and mm. the climate change that we're actually having to live through. And and then there was this other person that they interviewed um, who was a who was a tree doctor in Japan. Oh my God. And I just I think I fell in love with her. Okay. Yeah. Because just the way that she was talking about what she did and and the the communication that she establishes with the trees before she treats them. Uh, and um, how she she will ask the tree, how can I help you and what's up and how do we do this together? And, and she actually works in collaboration with the tree. Mm. And for, you know, perhaps some listeners out there that don't necessarily have a very deep connection with nature, it might sound kind of a bit sort of wacky and bizarre, but the going back to the point that I made before about, you know, we're actually all a part of the same natural ecosystem. So it doesn't, for me, it doesn't feel like a, a, a distant concept to consider that we might actually be able to communicate with. And I'm sure a lot of Indigenous cultures actually do. Like mm. that is just their understanding of the universe, of this planet, that they are actually connected and can communicate mm. and commune with nature. So, yeah. Mm. This is where I'm going to – I'm not even going to be half fact right here, I don't okay. think. Quarter fact. Possibly. Mm. There's a there's a religion that kind of burst in Japan, isn't there? Is it Shinto? Shinto. There's a Shinto priest on it. Yeah, because yeah. isn't the Shinto religion essentially about – how all living creatures and nature are indivisible from people. And yeah. I mean, that's about as much as I know about it, but I know that it plays out in how they treat their forests and how they move around yeah. space. And so I'm just thinking when you talk to me about that doctor that you've fallen in love with, she sounds like an exemplar of that approach. Sure. Yeah. And it was interesting because they, um, they traveled the world in the in the it's a 40 minute sort of documentary mm. 
and they spent some time um, in in Japan and they went up to Hokkaido, mm. which is the northern, northern prefecture. And um, they interviewed her as as a part of, you know, her profession and what she does and in terms of being a tree doctor, but they also interviewed a Shinto priest. Mm. I think they're priests. I think they're priests. Mm. And, um, and it was really interesting because he was also a snowboarder, but he – he didn't call it snowboarding. He called it snow surfing. Mm-hmm. And the way that he described the experience of snow surfing was was kind of like the way that you might hear, you know, surfers mm. talk about their connection with the water and their connection with the with the wave. And mm. and it's not like it, it didn't seem like it was something that he was trying to conquer. It was actually something that he was. He was working with the shape of the terrain and, and it was just, like I said, it was like a meditation. Mm. I, just, was, I totally blissed out for 40 minutes, just completely absorbed in the, um, the imagery and the dialogue and, well, obviously the content. So we'll put a link in the show mm. notes. Highly recommend that you watch it. Music? There was. Mm. Yeah. But I can't connect to it. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I always find the role of music in film and yeah. documentaries really fascinating. Yeah, and it was completely it was completely in harmony because it's it, like it's not something that jarred me or stood mm. out or whatever, but I I mean I use music a lot in my own meditation mm. practice, so totally totally get the importance of that. Mm. Yeah. Well, that sounds good. Yeah. Uh, You're going to say I? something about oh, collaboration. collaboration. I've been listening to this Book written by the Duplass brothers, Jay and Mark Duplass, yeah. who are American filmmakers, and they produce and direct um, and write things together. But they also do separate projects. And this book is—I'm just sorry—I'm just smiling because there's an opportunity for you to drop Brene Brown's name again, just because oh. we've got a <laughs> we've got a bit of a theme. We do have a bit of a theme. <laughs> I did hear them on a Brene Brown podcast. <laughs> Uh, I mean, we want you to listen to this, but, you know, you yeah. should really listen to her. Um, but I heard them interviewed on her podcast and she is a massive fangirl of them. So it was actually quite funny to hear her be kind of all fangirly. squeegee and yeah. fangirly around them. Uh, but I was so intrigued that I, I thought I would listen to this book. They wrote this book, but the narration by them makes it so powerful because they alternate chapters and... Then there are chapters where they're in dialogue with each other and there's a chapter where their wives answer questions that they've asked about them. So the thing that characterizes these two is that they are like no brothers I have ever met in my life. They love each other beyond anything and they privilege their relationship and they really spend time and think about how they can stay as loving brothers all the time. Like they love each other so much that when they were small, they each had a bedroom, but they slept in the same single bed oh. to chat to each other. And they carried that on when one of them went to college. And in American college, you have a roommate, yeah. but this brother would come and visit his older brother and sleep in the bed with him, oh, that's with so the gorgeous. roommate, <laughs> which, I you know, that. I think that must have been pretty challenging for the yeah. roommate. Yeah. So they're not twins. They're, no, they're not twins. A There's about between. three years between yeah, them. Right. And Jay, the older brother, has always looked out for Mark. And then obviously as they get older, Mark gets becomes good at things that 
Jay becomes jealous of. But so the book, <laughs> the book has touches on a few things. So it, it talks about collaboration too, because they're they're successful filmmakers, and so there's a whole series of chapters that talk about how they collaborate and how they write together and oh, what their different techniques are. And so Jay's the the closer. Mark's the like constantly generating the big ideas and getting them to a stage and then Jay fixes it and finishes it because Mark kind of moves on and um and and they talk about how they recognize that in one another and there's there's never any ego involved in anything getting fixed mm. it's it's the way they talk about how they collaborate is absolutely amazing and also how they collaborate and exclude other people mm, that's interesting even though they mean to include them just their relationship is so impenetrable impenetrable mm. but also so productive and yeah. creative so there's a, a whole kind of skein i don't think that's the right word thread smaller than a skein there's a whole thread that talks about um their collaboration and making films and they and they actually go into detail about some of the films they've made and how they came about and um, how they do with studios and agents and then there's another whole thread about them as brothers and their relationship and how they can't be at a party together, for instance, because if they're at a party together, they're watching each other kind of in this performative way and they just can't see each other be like that. <laughs> I know. it's They're so, That's so funny. weird and quirky, but also, but also so aware. Also, I think they spend a lot of time in therapy, okay, which they love, uh, but also they're so just raw and upfront about these things. And then there's these email exchanges between them, which are at both painful and excruciating to read, but also really illuminating and quite beautiful where they're just their raw honesty with each other oh, is lovely. absolutely amazing. Yeah. So it's uh, it's been a really nice thing to listen to because it gets me reflecting on how do you collaborate with someone and how do you, how do you take some of that ego out when something gets fixed or corrected? Uh, and the other thing that I really love about it is they're great celebrants of, they call them epic small moments. And it was such a beautiful description for me because I realized that was one of the things I loved most in art. So Helen Garner is one of my favorite authors and she never talks about anything that people would describe as big some of her most beautiful writing is about people having a cup of tea in a kitchen in the sun. Uh, and she's a really great observer of minute human emotion and action and behavior. And and I just thought that was a really beautiful thing for them to focus on because so much of history and so much of art is about big things. And those big things are often very masculine and they're about mm. how men have formed the idea about what the big thing is. And yet they they find all their creativity in the drama, in the small things. Mm, so. That's really interesting. It's mm. another thing. Um, yeah. Add to the list of things to uh, read and watch. You could listen to it while you crochet. Yeah, well, I yeah. So on that point, um, I have been listening to something while I'm crocheting, mm. which I'm just going to intro now and talk more about in the next episode. Okay, it's a, it's a teaser. It is a teaser. Um, but it's called uh, The Courage of Being Disliked. Ooh. And it's just, it's really interesting. It's a, it's actually written by, I think, a Japanese author. And um, 
it's a dialogue between a philosopher and a and a youth, mm-hmm. and they the philosopher is talking about um, a different type of psychology actually that I've just been aware of, uh, made aware of through this book called Adlerian Psychology. So Adler is the person who came up with this way of viewing psychology. Um, and it's different to the to the constructs that we would be familiar with around the the Freudian and the Jung thing, mm-hmm. which is kind of modern day psychology in a cause and effect sort of, you know, stuff that's happened to you in the past affects the way that you turn up in the future. Mm-hmm. There's a dichotomy between the consciousness and the unconsciousness and it's very kind of this or that cause and effect, whereas um, Adlerian psychology doesn't actually um, abide by those rules of psychology. It has this completely different perspective, which I'm loving. Mm. Um, but I'll go into the details of it next week. Mm. <clears throat> and um, But the thing that I love is the way that they've chosen to tell the story. And, Through a dialogue. Yeah, mm. yeah. And also noticing how I'm struggling with some of the stuff that I'm that I'm hearing because the youth is being quite challenged by what the philosopher is talking about and um, because he is a student of the other model of psychology mm. and um, and then also reflecting on who he is and how he is in the world and then these other um, constructs that the philosopher is talking about, like there's a thing around life goals, for example, in Adlerian psychology, which is, you know, you have certain things happen in your life because they are actually your goals to have those things happen, even if those things that are happening are not particularly good. And that Adlerian psychology is a psychology of courage. Mm-hmm. And the, the youth gets really riled up and angry and, you know, um, and I'm noticing how how uncomfortable I'm feeling in that dialogue with the youth being... Oh, like pushing back, pushing back, and getting angry with the oh. philosopher, and and um, and the philosopher is always saying, obviously, an elder, um, and is also um, expressing such gratitude for the dialogue, and the, you know, all it was just, it's just quite, it's quite beautiful in that way. Is it? Do you think that dialogue is a device, and that conversation didn't actually happen, or do you think it's more of a transcription of conversations that have happened between these two? Oh, I'm not sure. It feels like it's a, it is a device that, like, it's a storytelling mm. device that they've chosen, because the um, each so it happens over four nights, mm-hmm. and um, it's kind of like a week apart, and the student sort of goes away and and thinks about it and reflects on things and then comes back with new defences kind of thing, you know, is really resisting taking it on. Mm-hmm. Um, and through different sort of, um, what do you call them, I guess, beats in the in the dialogue that they share, the, um, it, it'll, it'll almost be you're, you're, you're taken out of the dialogue and there's a small little piece of narrative that says, now we're going to talk about this principle and then you drop oh, back into the okay. dialogue and they explore that and then you come out again and mm-hmm. they drop back in. Um, it's very elegant, I think, mm. the way that it's done. Nice structure. Yeah, and I think one that would actually resonate with you for sure mm. because it is a dialogue between two people, but it's it's not um, – it's fiction, non-fiction. You know, it's mm. the, the conversation didn't actually happen, but it's like it's a conversation and they're talking about these 
very real concepts like psychological tenets. Mm. Oh, I, I'm wondering if this is true at all, okay. the thing I'm about to say. <laughs> but when I'm hearing you say that, it, I think I'm reminded of, I think there's a, there's a text where they have Plato and Socrates in dialogue as well. Oh, beautiful. Yeah, but I'm not sure that. if that's true. Oh, I might idea, check though. that. It's a great idea. <laughs> I might check that out before we talk about this in more detail. Yeah, because cool. if that's true, then that's quite a nice. That's like a long tradition of yeah. a way of talking about philosophy and ideas and psychology. Yeah, yeah, and I think that that I mean, in those times, Socrates and Plato, and um, that was that that was what they did. Mm. You know, they would have dialogue and debate, and mm. and it was all. Or oral, oral, mm. oral, oral. Both those things. Yeah. <laughs> Talking and hearing. Yes. <laughs> um, should we? Oh, we better yeah. do the mystery question. All right. Here we go. All right, the mystery question for today is thank you to the person who provided this for us. Why does change happen? in fits and bursts you know things are kind of static for ages and then seemingly suddenly lots of change happens and things are different Mm. do you think that's true um i mean if i reflect on my own personal development i would say that's true Mm. in that um you know, I I feel like, you know how you say you're like a little bit like a magpie and you go and you find all this stuff mm. and you bring it back for inspiration. And I think I do that with knowledge. Like I'm constantly scratching over here and scratching over there and really broad in the stuff that I read and kind of, and then all of a sudden something happens where everything kind of gets integrated in some way. Mm. And then I, I am different because of it. Mm-hmm. And and I feel like there's like it, it there is a, a whole long period of kind of just I like gestation just yes yeah yeah and mm. then all of a sudden it kind of goes whoop and it's integrated and then I'm I'm sort of operating at a different level it feels you know and I don't mean level of don't know what I mean by level but just like accessing different thoughts and more confident to hold different conversations and less fearful of certain trajectories and, you know. Mm. So I think if I were to reflect on it from a personal development, personal growth perspective, that is absolutely my experience. Because mm. my mind went to the world. Yeah. And I don't know the answer, but oh, but there is some truth in that because, you know, there are things that are considered as, givens and and then suddenly something changes and they're no longer seen as appropriate or given so if you think about how we consider um slavery now even though it does still happen it's it's no longer um seen as a uh a suitable or a um honorable way to make money yeah Uh, i feel like eating meat will be seen in the same way in a hundred years and then if you look at those catalysts of revolutions you know there's a and they're revolutions, not evolutions, um, yeah. in many places where governments change or a whole, you know, mm. feudalism is is dispensed with, or, um, you know, we're seeing a revolution right now, and and what is it that makes the 
that enough people feel that something is is no longer the way things should be. Mm. I, I don't know what the answer to that is. Yeah, actually. you know, there's a couple of things that have, have popped into my mind. So obviously, um, I think it's Malcolm Gladwell's work around tipping point mm. and, and that sort of thing. But also at the same time, I'm reminded of a conversation I had, which I have mentioned on this podcast previously with a person that we're working with who has a background in earth earth sciences and how mm. they studied everything systemically and that, you know, we can't escape the fact that we're actually a part of nature, even though mm. we think and we're doing everything that we can to kind of wield our power over it. Um, but the just if we think about the way that bamboo grows, that it does a lot of work underground and establishes root systems. And if you were to look at it above ground, you kind of go, nothing much is happening. But then when it finally breaks above that surface, mm. it has this really beautifully established root system and it's really hard to get rid of after mm. that. And I wonder whether or not that is a kind of an interesting metaphor for the way that what you're talking about mm-hmm. happens in that those those root systems are actually growing within society that are moving us towards this change, but the change hasn't happened yet. So we can't see, mm. it hasn't broken through the surface. It's not explicit yet, but those, the frameworks and the, and the small groups of resistance are, you know, growing and, mm. and connecting and forming over a long period of time. Yeah. And then all of a sudden it just goes and it breaks the surface. That is absolutely true. I mean, I've been involved in lots of those and still am and people work for years and years and decades yeah. to to affect that change. But I suppose what's interesting is is how does how does it stop being, you know, and they talk that, about those yeah. underground movements. Yeah, and, right. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then how does it, what's the thing that makes it break through? What is that thing? You know, so if, you, if we think about, um, you know, if we just think about what's going on right now with the Black Lives Matter movement and suddenly there's this this growing interest in people understanding the experience of people of colour and and um, doing that work themselves and the protests and wanting to dismantle pol- police and change the way that is, you know, it, it can be traced back to the, the death of George Floyd, the murder of George Floyd. But, you know, in the week preceding, there had been so many murders of black people in the States. So what was it about that particular time and that particular thing? You know, if that indeed is the catalyst. Yeah. So I have a I have a perspective on that that I think is perhaps spiritual and, and philosophical in that the consciousness of the planet is ready. Mm. And um and perhaps we don't need to agree and and understand about the consciousness stuff, but just that there is a readiness. Mm. Like there's a and this is the tipping point stuff probably mm. in that in that there is, you know, it gets to a point where um, it's like it's almost like the pressure has built up or the, mm. you know, the. I guess it's like the burning, the boiling frog. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. But it's it, the, I'm just getting all of these pictures in my head now of this bubble. Mm. And then finally, like the surface tension can't hold it anymore and it just bursts. And mm. that's where you see the big change but i don't think that it you can point to the to the one thing that happens no well then i would really love to know how you can accelerate that mm. consciousness to be ready for more things yeah yeah for sure that's the trick isn't it yeah yeah definitely 
Mm, good question. Yes, thank you for the question. That was really enjoyable. Thanks, Cindy. Thanks, Melissa. Thank you for listening, everybody. Yeah, we've all got a lot of reading and listening to do now. That's right. We'll put it all in the show notes and um, see you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.